of God in the work of Satan, okay? Um, he will bring you, he'll bring over you a cloud of shame. That means I feel worthless, just unworthy. So what we do in the human world, what do we do? We try to reverse that with this self-esteem doctrine, right? You just need to pick up your self-esteem. Hey, nothing wrong with picking up your self-esteem as long as you know this is your, your self-worth only comes from him. The word worth is that word worthy, only he is worthy. My worth is only about his worthiness. It really comes down to it. Um, we're going to feel abandoned by God. God, where are you? Anybody never said that? God, I wonder where you are in this situation. Something bad. God, where are you? Don't know where this is. Talking to a friend of mine I hadn't seen in 20 years. I just caught up with him. Uh, and I said, hey, what's been going on? And I really didn't know anything. I didn't know how many kids he had. I didn't know, you know, if he had grandkids, whatever. And so he began to just tell him about all the kids. And then he said, yeah, and my, um, my son-in-law died. And then um, my daughter had twins, and one of the twins died, and then the other one had a blood disorder, and is two years old, just a little grandbaby. And, you know, and he's telling me all this stuff, you know, and I thought, wow, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed with all this. And, and he said, and you know, and I really wondered, where was God? It's a natural, normal, normal human response, isn't it? It's okay to ask that question. It's okay to feel that way, but you can't stay there. If you get stuck there, the enemy's got you. You know, and we lost our, our, our daughter-in-law, you know, a year into my son's marriage. I mean, I asked the question, God, what is going on? When my son was born premature, I asked the question, God, what is going on? But I can't stay there. Because if I stay there, what does the enemy do? He brings me down. Did you see the surfer that was surfing just a few days ago in the competition? The guy's out there, and the, the shark comes up, you know, gets a hold of the board and pulls this guy underneath because he's got, you know, his, he's, he's latched to, the, to, to, this, to his board. The guy survived somehow miraculously, but that's what the enemy does. He says, oh, you're off your board. Let me just see if I can take you down a little lower. I'll hold you under for a little bit. I'll hold you under until you give up hope in God. And you'll say, God, where are you? That's how the enemy works. Um, he, he will get us to, uh, he'll spin lies in our head. He will, he will take and, and convince us there's an impossible standard that God expects of you and I. And if we don't meet that standard, then we're not loved or accepted by God. So you think, well, you know, how could God love me like this or whatever? And you've just got to overcome those things. Um, uh, sometimes he opposes our spiritual growth by false doctrine. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Uh, Beloved, believe not every spirit. Is that the right one? No. In the last days, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy 4.1. 1 John 4.1. Let me get that one because I had it started. Um, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but test the spirits to see where they be of God. So we've got this reminder of stuff going on here, okay? So now when we... Think about it. He doesn't respect young or old, mature or immature. He is malicious, brutal, ruthless, and cruel. Now, the church, this is an interesting dimension here. The church is like the sheepfold, right? 
Now, the Bible warns us, you know, that the shepherd, he's looking around making sure the sheep is not going to try to, there's only one door in the sheepfold, and he wants to make sure that the enemy, the wolf, doesn't come in that door. But he says sometimes the wolf will try to jump, the, jump over the gate, right? So, but here's the thing. Where are the sheep most protected, within the sheepfold or outside the sheepfold? Within. Where are Christians most protected, within the church or outside the church? You see, within the church. Now, does that mean we cannot be attacked within the church? No, we can. But we're saying, you know what? There, there, is a, there is a certain protection that God provides for the body of Christ because the good shepherd oversees the church. I was having a discussion with a guy, and he said, you know, I, I just don't, um, you know, I don't know really where, if I'm going to go to church anywhere in particular. I might just float around if I don't need to be there or whatever. And I said, well, how, I, at first I talked to him about responsibility as the body of Christ, but then I said, tell me about how you feel protected. Do you feel any protection in that, or you just feel like you're kind of, well, I'm a Christian, I feel like I, you know, God loves me and all that kind of stuff. I said, but there's protection within the body. And we have to understand that that's the way God designed it. So if you go back to, um, to thinking about this whole thing in, in uh, the book of Habakkuk, he talks about how, how Satan is kind of like the one who comes along with, with a hook, right? And fish don't bite on hooks that they think are hooks, am I right? Now, Stan, I know you just spent like two years out in the Mexico there, Gulf of Mexico, wherever you were, and fishing, and, you know, and, and, and the whole idea is the best fishermen are the ones that can trick the fish the best. Right? They got the best techniques, they know where to go. They, they, they got perseverance. They'll stay there forever. Right? But you got to be able to trick. So, what is Satan going to do? Is he going to give you something that's obvious or is he going to try to trick you? I mean, if you got a hook, you got to hide it. You got to hide something around it, right? You got to put bait on there. You got to make it alluring. They can't see the line. You got to get everything just kind of right and it just kind of works for you. Unless you're Jesus, then you can just start slinging fish from the, you know, from the sea. Amen? Which is not a bad idea. Okay, so um, so when we think about it, it says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11 that Satan, we, we're not ignorant of his wiles, the wiles of the enemy, the strategies. So he's wily. Remember that cartoon, the wily coyote? Remember that? Just think about that. Like, you know, I'm trying to, Satan is wily. He said, you know what, how can I get you? you always got to be thinking, how can he get me? What's my weakness? Where am, have I left any doors open in my life? Am I vulnerable anywhere to any kind of attacks? Remember, the minute I sit down and rest, it's all done. Years ago, I used to race motocross, and um, I, was, uh, I, was, I took a big dam jump, and I went up, and I was in the air. When I got in the air, I noticed there was a guy who had missed his gear down here, and his, he was stalled. Instead of moving his bike off the road, he just stayed right in the middle of the track. And so when you're in the middle of air, you know, you, gotta, you, you don't know what to do. You just shift your weight because you don't want to land on this guy. So I shifted my weight, and, of course, I crashed. I hit the back of his bike. It didn't hurt him at all. But I'm laying there on the track, and all of a sudden, here comes an X-Rider over and runs over my back. Okay? So I was paralyzed from the waist down for about four to six hours. Um, but here's the, here's the story I want to tell you. So that happened. Okay, that was just... Let's just call it stupid Phil riding a motorcycle, okay? Let's just use that for the illustration here, okay? Now, what I've noticed is that if I let my back get weak or if I relax too much, I can throw my back out, 
And when it goes out, it's out. There's just no relief, but just stay away from Phil. Do not try to help. Do not try to comfort. Stay away from Phil, right? So if I'm sitting in a chair, I literally, if I get over-relaxed on my back, I will tense up my back because I don't want it to go out. We were going to take our uh, 20th anniversary. We took a trip, and uh, I decided I would, uh, we were living in a house where um, I was doing all the landscape, and it was about an acre. And I got a, I got a big dump truck worth of gravel, and I'm going to spread all this gravel and all this mulch. And I don't know how many ton of gravel I spread with a little bitty shovel. I mean, talk about stupid, right? Well, by the time it was time to go on the, uh, the little vacation, I could walk from maybe here to that wall. Hey, happy anniversary, babe. We got the landscaping done free. I got a weakness in my back. And it will only bother me about once every five years, honestly, because I know how to care for it. But if I let my guard down, I'm not walking. I want you to think about something in your life like that, that in the physical world that you can relate to, now, now make that a, a reminder, something that can just stimulate for you in the spiritual realm, I have to watch out because just in the physical realm, I have a, back, a week back, what is the equivalent of that in the spiritual realm that I have to be on guard for? That doesn't mean you're not going to hit get attacked, but it means you've got to be on guard and you've got to have something kind of a almost like a, a trigger that's that kind of moves your memory and says, I gotta watch out. Daniel chapter seven. Let's go over there for a minute. Daniel seven, verse twenty-five. I think I really do believe um, that we're living in unprecedented times. And I know everybody could have said that. But I really do believe there's some unprecedented times we're living in right now. And I think the one thing that I can tell you as a pastor who's, you know, been a pastor for a number of years, the one thing I can definitely tell you is true today that I've never seen before, and that is, is, is this truth that's given in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25. It says, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, and it's talking about the Antichrist, of course, shall persecute the saints of the Most High. He shall intend to change the times and the law, and the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and time and a half. Okay, so what does he do here? It says here that he is going to speak pompous words against God, persecute the saints, intend and change the laws. And it in one translation talks about in this, it says he will wear down the saints. I've never seen saints worn down like I see today. And I see it in every church. I hear it from everybody. I hear it, you know, from pastors. I hear it from people that there's a wearing down. Um, I do believe that the Antichrist, he indeed will change the laws, but I don't think laws change instantly. I think this changing the laws, I think this wearing down of the saints, I think what you see is almost like it starts to happen before it happens. So I think, I mean, are we not living in a lawless time right now in America where laws are just simply ignored? I mean, we've seen, what, two different videos now uh, of these clinics that are selling body parts from, from babies? Okay, two of them. One guy's bragging and laughing about it, you know, what he could buy with these parts. And you're looking at this thinking, why isn't this guy in jail today? You know? Because the laws, you see, they're just like an indifference to the laws. You know, um, 
why is it we can see guys in the highest political office break the law and there's no consequence? And every one of us says the same thing. Why doesn't somebody do something? Because we feel powerless, right? Well, doesn't it make sense that if the Antichrist comes and he basically is called the lawless one, that doesn't it make sense that there's some preparation to get us to that place so we, we adapt and think about, well, yeah, there's nothing we can do. I've never had this thought. We were, we were Tammy and I, um, did I talk about this, the golden woman or whatever it is, the movie, golden painting or whatever it is? I can't think of the name of it. Anyway, it's a movie that's just, uh, I think it's at the theaters right now. It's a true story about a painting that was stolen during the Holocaust. Did I talk about this already? No? Okay. So, um, and, and it shows these little scenes, these little vignettes from, you know, from World War II and how people just, you know, they, they didn't really believe you know, for example, the Jews, it was all a story about a Jewish family, and they didn't really believe that it was as bad as it was. It would never happen to them, and they were very wealthy, and things were good for them and everything else. And then they came, and they took all their jewelry and all their paintings, you know, and they thought, well, what difference does it make? There's no value to us. What we have is our family. So they said, we can do without the money, right? Then the next wave comes in. Now they're taking, now they're taking away their freedom. Now they're taking away their life. So the story in the, is, is about this one painting called The Golden Girl or The Golden Woman, whatever it is, Woman in Gold. And, uh, and I won't tell you the rest of the story because I'll, I'll spoil her alert here, right? But it's all about this story about how, how everybody just kind of got lulled into complacency. And Tammy and I were talking about, we're talking about our situation in America and around the world, that isn't it interesting how we're all a little bit lulled into complacency? We kind of accept lawlessness in our world. We accept some things. We, we hate it. And we do feel powerless about it. So it only makes sense. So one of the things, I, the point I wanted to make was, I think there is a wearing down on the saints today that is a part of the times we're living in. That's my whole point, okay? If you feel that wearing down, right? You say, if you were just more exciting, I wouldn't be so worn down, amen? But if you're just a wearing down. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take and draw three circles on a piece of paper somewhere in front of you, okay? Three circles, and I'll give you some illustrations about what to do. Just three circles next to each other. And below one of them, I want you to put the word spiritual. Below the next one, I want you to put the word emotional. And the next one, I want you to put the word physical. Got it? Okay, now, at the bottom in that circle, I want you to put, like this was a gas gauge, so you're going to make three gas gauges, okay? And I want you to put on, one, on the left-hand side, E for empty, and on the right-hand side at the bottom, I want you to put F for full. On each one of those three circles. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take, don't get in a hurry, just think about it a minute. I want you to take, and you're going to put like a little gauge on there, and you're going to mark yourself. If I were a car, okay, my spiritual gauge, it, would I be on quarter tank, half tank, three quarters, or full? Okay. My emotional gauge, would I be on, again, empty, half, quarter, full, and same thing with physical. Okay, just take a minute and do that, okay? Everybody got it? Got it done? 
Okay, now turn to somebody close to you and tell them what your gauges are. Okay, go ahead and tell somebody who your gauges are. Odette, you have to play. Marlene, you have to play. Who's Stan's partner there? Stan needs a partner right there. Poor You're thinking. Okay, let's go ahead and just uh, see how we did. How many of you, let's start with the spiritual gauge. How many of you said your gauge was half full or less? Raise your hand. Half full or less. Okay. How about, um, how many of you said it was three-quarters full? Your spiritual gauge was three-quarters. Anybody say it was full? Your gauge was full. spiritual gauge was full? Okay, Lisa, Christy, not really, not really full. Do you want to keep your position? That's okay, Lisa. Yeah, right now. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Okay, how about the emotional gauge? How many of you just say your emotional gauge was half or less? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you would say it was quarter or less? Okay. How about who would say it was half to three quarters on your emotional gauge? And how many would say it was completely full? Emotional gauge full. Okay. How about physical gauge? How many would just say it was half or less? That, okay, that means, you know, you feel healthy, you're eating fruit, nuts, tree bark, whatever you eat, right? All that kind of stuff. Okay, and how many of you say it was, it was three-quarters, half to three-quarters on the physical? Okay, anybody say it was like, man, it's as good as it can get, right? Okay, all right. Okay, now, now let me ask you a question. Which gauge is the most important gauge? How many of you would say spiritual? Raise your hand. Keep it up high. I want, to, I want you to be marked. Okay, how many of you would say the emotional gauge is the most important? Okay, two, three of you, four of you. Okay. How many would you say physical is most important? Nobody. Yeah, let's go eat some pie. Okay. Right? Okay, now, let me, let me give you a theory here. And I, I'm going to test this theory on you. You see if you agree with me. It seems like the spiritual gauge should be the most important gauge. However, if you're more emotionally spent, right, how well do you want to, are you attracted to go do the spiritual thing? Now, we would have to say all of them are important, right? Because if you're physically, like, feel horrible, you're not really wanting to do it either. But I think that we underestimate. This is my only point. The spiritual, always choose the spiritual. But my point is this. Emotionally, if you're just running on fumes, you know, think about Elijah the prophet, 1 Kings chapter 18 and following. 
18, he's doing good with, the, with Jezebel, right, and the prophets of Baal. Then in 19, he's running for his life. He's sitting under a tree. He's asking God to kill him. He's so depressed. He's emotionally worn out, maybe physically worn out. What does God prescribe? Prayer, Bible reading, or rest? Isn't that interesting? God doesn't say, Elijah, you haven't prayed enough. Elijah, up to your feet. Start praising me. Elijah, you need to read the scrolls. You need to read your Bible. He doesn't say it. He says, I'll tell you what, Elijah, you go ahead and go to sleep. God wakes him up, feeds him, tells him to go back to sleep, feeds him again, says, okay, now you're ready for the journey. We underestimate what the, what, how detrimental emotional and physical things can be to us, to our whole spiritual life and our well-being. So all I'm telling you is this. Balance is always going to be the best. Proverbs says, a false balance is an abomination unto the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Don't you think that God wants that balance in your life as well? Get enough rest. You, you, know, you know what you need. Some of you need five hours. Some of you need eight. Some of you are sleeping. You're sleeping. You're in bed eight hours, but you're only sleeping four. You know, get a fit band. You know those fit, fit bands? Huh? Any of you have got them? So my son has one. I don't know if I told you this, but he has one. He sleeps. He goes to bed pretty early. Goes to bed. This is Josh. He goes to bed no later than 9.30 or 10 unless he's working. Okay? Then he's up every day at like 5.30. So he's getting, you know, seven hours. How many hours do you think his Fitband says he's getting? Three and a half. Three and a half hours of sleep. He's in bed seven, eight hours. He's only getting three hours of actual sleep. So you can be getting eight hours in the bed and not be getting eight hours of sleep. So maybe get a Fitband, try it out, and see if you're fatigued, if you just, you know, you can't seem to get enough sleep. It could be that the enemy's wearing you out of spiritual. It could just be something as simple as, you just need to get better sleep. Okay? So just a, just a thought. Um, so what does 1 Peter 5.8 tell us? It says we've got to be sober. You know what it means to be sober? Stay in control. You've got to stay in control of your life. Be sober. Be vigilant. Be, you know, be diligent. Be watchful. Uh, being watchful means not, uh, not being afraid of Satan but not being unaware of his schemes. I'm going to keep that balance. I'm not afraid of him. But I'm not unaware of his schemes. Can he get me? Sure he can. If I let my guard down, if I don't, if I don't you know, do some exercises for my lower back, my back's going to hurt. So I've got to be diligent in those things. I've got to watch out. Uh, for, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and 18, it says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. What does that mean? That means I've got to be under the control of him versus anything else. I've got to let God control my life. Right? Um, have you seen the little ads, don't drive buzzed? Right? Don't drive buzzed. I'm not drunk, I'm just buzzed. Okay? Well, let me just, let's not talk about that for a minute. Let's just take that in the spiritual realm. I think some of us live buzzed in the Holy Spirit. Get a little bit, but we're not filled. How's that sound? Make sense? When I watch that, when I drive down, it says, don't drink buzzed. I always think, i got to make sure I'm not just getting a little taste of the Holy Spirit, just getting buzzed, just getting enough to get by, enough to kind of feel good, enough to kind of, you know, kind of taste but not really get drunk in the Holy Spirit, so to speak. We want to be filled. We want the Holy Spirit to control us and live that kind of a life so that we can function strong. 
Uh, chapter 4. Any questions about chapter 3? Chapter 3. In fact, that's why we decided to, to end these classes at 8.30. We thought we're wearing you out at 9. Okay? Right? When four of you fell out of your chair and fell asleep, we said, yeah, maybe we're going too long. Okay. Chapter 4. Chapter 4. Um, so Robert tells a story about starting this church. He was on staff at a church in Dallas, and uh, uh, they decided to do a church start. And so they started the first week, I think he said, with 200 people, and the next week it dwindled down to 68. And uh, then over the course, I think, of the next uh, year or two, it got up to like 600 people, and then it started to double, and things started to happen. And then all of a sudden, you know, this church grew very big, and he was totally exhausted. And this guy, if you read his story, I mean, this guy doesn't get exhausted. He gets exhausted, you know. He pushes to where he can't get out of bed for 30 days, kind of exhausted. And it was like God said to him, you know, you need to get some people to help you. You need to get some people to help you. Whenever we have that attitude, and I, I think I've had it, you know, more than I'd like to admit, um, I think I can handle it. i got to remind myself that's pride. That's not competency. There comes a point at which it moves beyond my ability and it moves into pride. And pride comes before a fall. And a haughty spirit leads to destruction. So we have to know, we have to be a little bit more sensitive in our own heart. What is that? So how does, how does pride show up in our life? Pride shows up in our life by trusting in our own strength. You might trust in your own strength by saying, I'm only going to give God the big stuff to, to worry about. I'll, I'll take care of all the little stuff, God. You're trusting in your own strength. Um, in page, uh, this is kind of following on page like 69 and following. Some of you like to kind of mark where we're going, kind of keep a track there. But, but, um, but Jesus talks about Peter. He, he says to Peter, Peter, Satan's desire is to sift you like wheat. Anybody ever sifted wheat? You know, you can take wheat. My granddad used to take wheat, and he'd put it in his hand, and we'd rub them together and get the friction going, and you'd get all the chaff off, and then you'd just have the seed. And then you, what you literally would do is just take the, your hand and just <laughs> blow on it, and all that chaff would be driven away, and you just have the seed left. And so here's what it says. Satan desires to sift you like wheat. Well, you know, if I'm Peter, I'm thinking, that doesn't sound like a good thing. I don't want to be sifted like wheat. Now, interesting, Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate both day and night. He should be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in all of its seasons. The wicked are not so, but shall be like chaff driven away by the wind. Now, Peter isn't chaff. He's seed, but he's got chaff on him. The only way to get chaff off of Peter was to turn Satan loose on Peter to get the chaff off of Peter. Ouch. I mean, all of us would say this. You know, if that's the option, can I just do a little chaff removal process, you know, kind of like, you know, a, a, you know, 
what do women do, the wax on thing, whatever it is, right? I guess guys do it now too, but anyway, you know, get the, get the unneeded hair off, right? Okay. Well, God, can I just do something like that? Why, why is it? And, and Jesus' response is, Satan's desire is to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, you that your faith fail not. You mean it's possible in, the, in, in the, the sifting process that my faith could fail? Yes, it is. I'm praying for you that your faith fail not. Why on earth, why on earth would Jesus let Satan sift him like wheat? Because of Peter's pride. He opened the door. He, got, he gave legal access to Satan. says, hey, wait a minute. I am, the, I am the father of pride. Peter's got some pride over here. Therefore, I have legal access to go in here and sift him. He says, yeah, you're right. Go ahead. Go ahead and sift him like some wheat. But I'm going to pray for you, Peter. I'm going to pray that your faith does not fail. So Peter left the door open because of pride, and he demanded access. Another example, Jesus is telling um, his disciples that he's going to go to the cross and die. Peter says, I'm not going to let it happen. Do you remember what Jesus said? Whoa, get behind thee, Satan. Whoa. What was Peter saying? I can handle this. I'm in control. Nobody's going to take your life. No, you see, pride is getting in the way. It would be Satan who would say, let's not let him die. If we let him die and he, goes and he rises from the dead, we're in a mess. Isn't that interesting? Because of pride, Satan has a right in that situation. Okay, second thing, trusting in our own righteousness. Job. Job wasn't proud. Job trusted in his own righteousness. So let's go to Job, a little book of Job, chapter 1. It's such an interesting book, such a misunderstood book, you know. Everybody who has a bad day thinks they're Job. Job chapter 1 and verse 6 and 7. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before God, before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. What? What? Are you cold? Everybody, is somebody cold in here? Feels good. Feels kind of good to some of us, but I'm going to turn it off here because it worked. It's, I, I think it's wonderful. You stay awake much better when you're cold, by the way. Proven fact. Okay, so Job, he says, so all of a sudden, the sons of God's come, the angels come, they, pres- they come before the Lord, and Satan appears among them. I didn't know he could do that. I didn't know he had access in some way. And when the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered and said to him, from going to and fro on the earth. Remember that, that quote I gave you from Numbers? The eyes of the Lord move to and fro across the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. There's Satan saying, I'm, I'm, you're doing it, I'm doing it too. 
from walking back and forth on it. Satan is like a roaring lion, right? 1 Peter 5.8, seeking whom he may destroy. Now just drop down to verses uh, 8 and following. The Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless, upright man who fears God and shuns evil. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job, does Job fear God for nothing? You see, I, I've been watching Job. I've been seeing some stuff in Job, and I think I have an opportunity. Have you not made a hedge about him and around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said unto certain, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So what does God do? God basically gives Satan permission to oppress Job, right? I mean, it's just hard to read any other way, isn't it? Okay? So let's go over to, a little bit further in the book of Job, let's go over into 30, I think it's 33, might be 32. 30, let's just go to 33, verse 8. This will this will be good here. 33. Verses 8 and 9. We have this guy named Elihu. There's, uh, there's some guys in, in the book of Job is really cool. There's, there's three friends that come to Job, Bildad, um, Zophar, and Eliphaz. And all of them got good advice. And basically Job just kind of says, no, you don't got the answer. They always say, you know, here's what's wrong with you, Job. And he says, no, I, you know, I don't, I don't know about that. You know, I'm, I'm good. I'm doing good, right? Elihu seems to hit the nail on the head a little bit better. He kind of identifies the problem. Verse 8. He says, surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have not heard the sound of your words. I am pure without transgression. I am innocent, and there is no inequity in me. What was Job doing? Job was, apparently was recounting this. I am pure without transgression. I am innocent. There is no inequity in me. Job believed that he was righteous because of his lifestyle. His, his standard of living was his righteousness instead of the righteousness of God. Was Job a good guy? Sure. Would you want him as a neighbor? Absolutely. Would, would he just kind of step up and be the, the guy you'd go, that guy really is walking with God? Yeah, but you know what? There was something God saw in him that he wanted to take care of. So go to Job chapter 38, verses 4 and 5. So now the Lord is talking to Job, and he's, kinda, he's going to kind of give Job a, little, a few questions here. And he says in verse uh, 4 and 5, he said, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have, have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Do you hear the sarcasm in God's voice? Hey, you know, where were you when I started getting this thing going and I measured out and figured out how big earth was going to be? Surely you know. I mean, is that like smart aleck or what? Come on, do you know? What, what, what? Right? That's really what he's saying to him. Surely you know. Or who stretched a line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who shut the sea up with the doors when it burst forth and it issued from the womb when I made the clouds its garment, the thick darkness a swaddling band? Where were you? Go to chapter 40, verse 8. 
Job's response to God, would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God, or can you thunder with a voice like his? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor, and array yourself with glory and beauty. Job was saying, I've always done the right thing. You see, Job wasn't suffering from pride. He was suffering from self-righteousness. That's a door the enemy can get in. Let me show you what happens to old Job, chapter 42. You always like a nice ending, don't you? Nice ending. Takes 42 chapters. Get a nice ending out of uh, Job. Just like it's going to take 42 months to get a good ending out of Israel during the tribulation. That's why there's 42 chapters in Job. Because Job's a type of Israel in the tribulation. That's why the book of Job appears before the book of Psalms. Because Psalms is written for a millennial book. It makes the most sense during the millennium. That's why Job's set in, in, uh, in, in darkness for what? Seven days. See, Job is all about the tribulation. It's a picture of the tribulation for the Jews. What happens? Wow, the Antichrist comes on the scene. They get their eyes open. So look what happens here in Job chapter 42. Job says, um, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. He went from physical to spiritual. Therefore, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Okay? Job's just had a rebirth of some kind and a new awareness of God. Verse 10, then the Lord restored the losses uh, when he prayed for his friends. You know what? His friends who were trying to help him say, you know what, Job, I think the problem might be you're self-righteous. God did not restore Job until he prayed for his friends. Because the praying for his friends was acknowledgement, a confession of self-righteousness. My friends were right about me. And I thought I was right. Isn't that interesting? I thought I was right. When, I, I circle that word when there in my Bible. When, when he prayed for his friends, indeed the Lord gave Job twice as much as he'd had before. Verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. You think that phrase latter days is a coincidence? God will bless Israel more in the latter days than he did in the first. Book of Judges is a book that leads up to the time right, right before the tribulation. Book of Judges. How, what's the last verse, last chapter, the book of Judges? What does it say? There was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eye. There's no king. When there's nobody to run it, who steps in? Antichrist steps in. The book of Job enters. You finish out in, in the book of, of, of Job. Go to the book of Psalms. Look what happens. I already quoted verse one, or chapter 1. I won't quote it again. But look what happens in chapter two, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. What is that? That's exactly what it says is going to happen in Armageddon. Why do they do that? Let us break their bonds in pieces. Let us cast away their cords. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak from them in his wrath and distress. He shall in, in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill. Get ready. The king is coming. 
He's coming on a holy hill, chapter 19, verse 11, Revelation. I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. He comes, he's wearing a crown of many nations, right? And the nations of the earth, he shall become the king and the Lord of all the nations of the earth. And the ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. What does it say of David? You shall sit on the throne of your father, David, and you shall rule them with a rod of what? Iron. He's a benevolent dictator during the millennium. You shall break them with a rod of pieces. You shall dash them with pieces as a potter's field. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Isn't that cool stuff? You'll also find if you study the book of Job, it's the most scientific book in the Bible. It, it's got some amazing stuff. All right, but enough of that. Let's move on. Trusting in our own wisdom. None of us would ever do that. Um, God will send the enemy in to oppress us. Now, let's just go to 1 Kings. Don't you love the Word of God? You know, it's funny. You can be tired and not really interested, and you just start reading it, and the Spirit of God just kind of gets a hold of your heart. Kind of go, oh, I'm back, in, I'm back in the game. You know, I'm back. Thank God. Okay, 1 Kings chapter uh, 22. Now, this is really an interesting story. Um, beginning in verse 15, uh, then it came to the king, and the king said to Micaiah, uh, shall we go over against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall we refrain? And he answered and said, go and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. So the king said unto them, how many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Now, we've got a lying prophet on our hands here. It's a problem, all right? Okay, verse 17. Then he said, I saw all of Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep and have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, Did not I tell you that he would not proph- uh, prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall in Ramath-Gilead? So one spoke in this manner, and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord. Right? Something's going on here. This is like Job 1. Got your attention yet? Then the Spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said unto him, In what way? He said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And the Lord said, You shall persuade him also, prevail, go out and do so. I mean, I mean, you're, you're not in kindergarten anymore when you're reading this stuff. Right? You, you've moved beyond focus on the family. James Dobson, all those other guys, right? 
Who cares if you can, you've got to whip your child? Right now, you've got demon spirits are going up talking to God, and he's saying, go put a lying spirit in his mouth, and we're going to get this thing all messed up, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna show them. See, here's the one thing that we have the hardest time to believe, and that is that there's not a dualism that exists in the kingdom. Dualism means God's over here, Satan's over here, and they're battling it out, and we know God will ultimately win, but this is happening all the time. That's dualism. The right picture is here's God. He's sovereign. He's at the top of the food chain, so to speak, right? And below him is Satan. God has Satan do his bidding in order to accomplish his purpose. Because God can see the end from the beginning. And he says, I know how to get my servant Job. I know how to get my servant Phil, John, anybody else in this room. I know how to get them to this place. And I'm going to use some methods that are going to be super effective and not comfortable. But I've got the end in mind. Now, he's not going to like it. We're not going to like it. But we're going to like the outcome. Serious stuff. God sometimes sends the enemy so that we can learn humility. God sees danger and he pushes us out of the way so that we don't aren't destroyed. Right? God sees danger, he pushes out, out us out of the way so we're not destroyed, so that we're, we prevent destruction. James chapter three. I'm going to be done a little early tonight, unless you two, all of you just listen a little too slow here at the end. Okay, James chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Can I back up to 13? That would be okay. Who is wise and understanding among you? Gosh, nobody would admit to that after this story, right? Not me. I don't want to be proud. Let him show by his good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Do you mean there is a demonic wisdom? Now think about that. When we think of wisdom, wisdom always sounds good, right? But now he says, wait a minute, there's two different brands of wisdom. You can have demonic wisdom. The word wisdom in the Greek is the word sophos. Sophos. S-O-P-H-O-S. Sophos. We get an English word from it. The English word is sophisticated. Wisdom that is demonic can sound very sophisticated. The word philosophy is, is where we get our word, is the word phileo, or where we get our word uh, uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But it means, but that word um, philosophy is a word that means to love wisdom, but the wrong kind. I heard an illustration of what is, what is philosophy. Philosophy is a black cat in a black room with the light out, that doesn't exist. <laughs> How's that? Does that pretty well do it? You know, I mean, if you've ever talked to anyone that, that has 
And, and by the way, we all use philosophy, and there's, there's a good use of philosophy, right? So we're not, we're not dissing on philosophy here. So there's a good use of it. But if you've ever had someone who did not believe in God and used philosophy, didn't it sound pretty smart? Didn't it sound like it makes sense? And it, it, it even got you going. You go, well, yeah, wow, that really sounds true. Makes sense to me. But see, that wisdom can be, it can be not from above, but can be demonic. It can also be sensual. What does that mean? It means it appeals to the basis nature of man. Now, I've never played the lotto. And I don't want to play it unless I can win. Right? So there's a good chance I never play. I don't even know. I mean, I see guys going to buy a lotto ticket. I don't know what you do. Is it scratch and sniff? I don't know what you do with it, right? I have no idea. You know, they get, give me the fourth. If you mark, good three. I, I don't know what he's talking about, right? But if you play the lotto, I'm not condemning you. I hope you play it and win, okay? So I'm not trying to diss on lotto players here, right? I just don't do it, don't have any interest in it. You know, I'd rather have that dollar and go get something that's really needful like a candy bar. Okay, right? Okay, but now, do you see how it can be sensual? What's it doing? It's appealing to the baseness of me. And what is that? I can get something for nothing. I can get something that I don't deserve, that I probably don't need, that may even ruin my life. See, that can be, and I'm not saying don't play the lot of, do you understand me? I'm not condemning you here. I'm not, I don't care. If you win, you got to tie. That's my only rule. <laughs> but you see how it can, it can appeal to the base part of man? We have, to, we have to always be checking our motives, right? Just kind of be testing the water, testing it. If, re, if we refuse the warnings God brings us, then God will just find another way to get our attention because he loves us so much. It's not hate. It's just love. I think he used an illustration here, you know, like if, you're, if you've got a little kid and the kid's getting ready to step out in front of a bus, what do you do? You deserve it. I told you to stay on the corner. Is that what you'd say? Man, you would push that kid out of the way. He might skin his nose. He might break a leg, but he's not dead. So sometimes God just pushes you out of the way, skins your nose, breaks a leg. You know, I'm going to close with this. You know, it's, uh, they say of the shepherds, you know, sometimes if they have a little lamb that runs away all the time, what that shepherd will do is go and he'll break its leg, reset it, put it over its shoulders, and carry it around until it's ready, can, until that heals and it can walk again. Ouch. Yeah, and they bond too. Yeah, get close. Amen. Okay, questions, anything? Yeah. Okay. Just, you know, 
Well, I mean, I was praying and waiting and praying for him and things like that, but it took a, it took some spiritual, good spiritual prayer. Yeah, and and college is designed to do that. I mean, I, I hate to disappoint all of you here, but college is designed to disrupt faith in the true God. That's the whole purpose of it. It really is. It's to displace God. You know, now should you not go to college? No, you got to go to college. But you got to know. It'd be great if you know kids could have a little bit of preparation. You know, sometimes we spend too much time getting them ready for the wrong stuff. Right. You know, they got a great vacation before you start college. Well, you didn't need a great vacation. What you needed was you needed a you needed a, a combat course. I went to college. I was when I went to college, uh, and I was in my second year, pre law student. Went into a philosophy class. Uh, about three thousand students in this class. It was huge, right? State University. First question was, how many of you in this class are Christians? About seven of us raised our hands. Stupid. Should have kept my hand down. Here's what the professor then said. I want you to look at these people. These are some of the stupidest people you'll ever meet in your life. Well, now I'm totally humiliated in front of my entire class. You know, it didn't, I, I didn't lose my faith. I just thought, wow, I'm in for a battle here. This is going to be the real deal. But, like, if you know a little bit of philosophy, you know, and, and we may do some of this stuff, just a little bit of stuff to kind of help you. But, you know, like, for example, there is a part of philosophy called the law of A-B contradiction. It's always true. It goes like this. If there's light, there's what? Darkness. Okay? If there's a positive, there's a... Okay? If there's a Satan, there's a God. Yeah. Oh, do I need my Bible? Okay, hold on. James, are we in James? Yeah. James 3? Okay, hold on. Let me get over there. James, is that in the New Testament? Yeah, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. That's good. Yeah. And I, you know, thank you for reminding me I should have read that too. You know, as you were reading it, I was just, it was just, isn't it funny how somebody reads the Word of God and just ministers to you? You know, I just said, that, that ministers to me. And I, I was sitting there thinking about it. I thought, okay, how do I, how do I use this as a, a litmus test on what's wisdom from above? So I can ask myself in a situation, okay, well, let me ask you something. Is, that, is it pure what's being said? Is it peaceable? That is, does it bring peace to me? Does it bring peace to the situation? Is it gentle? Is it willing to yield? Is it full of mercy? Is it with good fruit? Is it without partiality, without hypocrisy? Is it sown in peace, those who make peace? So what if I just reverse all those? Okay, so wisdom that's from below is unpeaceable, violent, obstinate, cruel, uh, hypocrisy, and it, it sows discord instead of peace. There it is. Now, immediately I can say, 
when somebody when I'm talking to somebody and they're they have those characteristics, go wait a minute, that's wisdom from below. So thank you, good good word. Okay, guys, you know your assignment for next week to read the next two chapters. Got it.